You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 1, Episode 38. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Welcome back, everyone, to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, an immigration lawyer practicing in the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. In this episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast, I had the opportunity to catch up to Scott Bell, who is an immigration lawyer practicing in Saskatchewan with the law firm of MLT. Um, This podcast is a special podcast devoted to provincial nominee programs, and Scott, who obviously practices in the province of Saskatchewan, is going to talk about the Saskatchewan Immigrant Nominee Program. Now, this interview that I did with Scott um, was excellent. He, well, let's put it this way. There's provincial nominee programs all across the country. I know the AINP. I know how the Alberta Immigrant Nominee Program works. I know the the officers who run it, the program manager. Um, I've had way more opportunities to understand the inner workings of some of the less published policies and practices and, and those kinds of things. But that's because I practice in the province of Alberta. I do not have an in-depth knowledge of what goes on with the program in Saskatchewan, nor an in-depth or detailed or nearly as close um uh, of an intimate understanding of the provincial nominee program in BC or Nova, or New Brunswick or Nova Scotia. I think you're getting the idea here. So you can see that one of the, the purposes behind this podcast is to bring in people that are experienced. And uh, as lawyers, we can't emphasize that we are experts in our fields. But the reality is I bring in the people, you know, the, 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 the lawyers who are actually practicing in these provinces who have a truly uh, insider point of view on how to best benefit from the provisions of these various PNPs. And in the case of Scott Bell, it's no different. Him, uh, he and his firm and, and the team with him um, have been heavily involved in uh, what's been going on with the Saskatchewan Immigrant Nominee Program. And he has tremendous insight that he shares with us, like all of my guests on the podcast. So we'll get to Scott's interview here in just a little bit. Um, I want to express appreciation for all that are listening once again to this podcast. And I'd encourage you to go over to iTunes and and rate it. I, I looked there and I think I'm sitting at about three reviews. They're all positive, which I really appreciate. But it would be awesome if you could take the time to, to slide over there and leave a review of the podcast. Also, uh, I just want to encourage anyone who has ideas or suggestions for topics or different approaches that we can take to the podcast, send them my way. My whole purpose here, as I say, every podcast is to promote those awesome immigration lawyers and consultants who are doing it right out there, give them the the profile building that they deserve, and also to provide a source of awesome content, just information that can be relied upon and trusted. So that is no different with this podcast, and I've brought Scott Bell in to 
um, share some insight with us on the SINP. So without further ado, let's jump to my podcast and the interview that I had with immigration lawyer Scott Bell. Well, I'm here with uh, immigration lawyer uh, Scott Bell, who practices in the law firm of uh, MLT, uh, McPherson Leslie Tireman, which I understand is going to be changing here quickly um, in the province of uh, Saskatchewan, uh, in the city of Saskatoon. Uh, welcome, Scott. Uh, thanks for having me, Mark. So I thought, Scott, I might uh, just take a few minutes just to introduce you and, and to talk a little bit about uh, where you practice and your firm. Um, I think as, as I, I kind of look at things online and, and in my discussions with you, uh, MLT has been growing quickly and it is one of the, and I think I'm safe to say this, one of the larger uh, firms in Western Canada. And uh, you've got offices across Saskatchewan, Alberta, in Vancouver. And as of January, you're going to add Manitoba, Winnipeg, and the firm of Aikens, you guys are merging with them, I understand. Yeah, effective uh, January 1st of 2017, we're going to be MLT Aikens, at 240 lawyers going from Manitoba right to uh, right to BC, so uh, and everything in between. So it's going to be pretty interesting once the uh, the merger kind of completes itself. Very cool. That's awesome. So Scott is a, a senior associate over at MLT, and uh, he's over immigration there. And um, after reviewing the bio that, that Scott's provided me here, his practice focuses on business and employment-based applications. So when it comes to uh, you know the immigration world, um, everything related to companies uh, trying to establish themselves in Saskatchewan, looking to um, you know retain skilled workers, uh, source others to fill labor shortages, those kinds of things, everything related to uh, to business immigration that fits within the gambit that's that Scott practices. Um, it's interesting as I, as I look as well at some of the things that you've provided, compliance is a pretty big component to, uh, to your practice. And, uh, so, uh, that's sometimes the, an afterthought for some companies when they're wading into these, this crazy world of Canadian immigration. Uh, the last thing they think about is, um, you know, the, the, uh, the compliance matters and their obligations once they've got the work permit. So I see that that uh, forms a fairly substantial part of your practice as well. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's compliance up front is uh, always much easier than uh, trying to comply with an audit later on where there's uh, issues. So we've taken a huge chunk of our time and really focused on, you know, making sure employers do understand up front what they need to do rather than uh, kind of having to deal with it ad hoc after the fact. So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That is, yeah, and, and especially within um, the Saskatchewan, um, the, the province itself, one of the reasons that I wanted to get Scott on was to talk about the Saskatchewan Immigrant Nominee Program. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about how we wanted to present this within the podcast, but, you know, I think it probably makes sense if we segue into compliance, there is um, uh, a registration obligation that employers have to undertake when they are looking at accessing the Saskatchewan Immigrant Nominee Program or even bringing foreign workers into the province themselves. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that is different than especially Alberta, for example, or, or even Ontario. Yeah. Um, so in Saskatchewan, uh, in late 2013, they introduced the Foreign Worker Recruitment and Immigration Services Act. Um, it is an act that covers exactly what the title says, so it's a pretty uninspired title for a piece of legislation, <laughs> but it's at least informative of what it's actually looking to accomplish. Um, so with that act, when they brought it in, 
uh, they decided they were going to put extra an extra level of regulation uh, on immigration services uh, and recruitment services, which they kind of split up in the act. So immigration services would be whatever an authorized representative can do or a registered immigration consultant. Um, making applications, filling out forms, telling people where to go to do stuff, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, with recruitment services, those were more uniquely defined as what you would expect. Um, undertaking job interviews, uh, getting headhunters or third-party companies to source workers, um, you know, uh, conducting interviews, reviewing resumes, making job offers to foreign nationals, anything that's more so with securing the foreign national for the position um, – became a recruitment service. And what they did was they created a licensing regime. So third parties, uh, immigration consultants looking to provide recruitment services or immigration services in the province needed to get licensed. Um, uh, lawyers in good standing could avoid licensing for immigration services, but did need to get uh, a license for providing recruitment services. Um, and then with employers, um, they created an exemption where employers don't have to actually hold a license to undertake recruitment services, but they do have to become registered with the province through the Ministry of the Economy before actually uh, uh, undertaking recruitment services themselves for their own purposes. So it created this situation where, as an employer, if I'm looking to source foreign workers for positions primarily in Saskatchewan, before I can even undertake the recruitment services to locate those workers, um, I do actually have to register and obtain what's known as a certificate of registration. Um, and if I undertake recruitment services without having that certificate of registration in hand, um, I'm offside the act and potentially in a position of noncompliance. So it's uh, similar to Manitoba has a similar type of act. Um, Ontario tried to put a similar registration process in place, but uh, – I believe it failed in its implementation, uh, but Saskatchewan does have this uh, employer registration obligation that's there before you can undertake, and that's even before hiring a third party who is otherwise licensed or registered. So uh, it's a pretty uh, pretty detailed kind of requirement to make sure that it's uh, as an employer you have to comply with it, or you're going to run into some problems later on. So why, uh, Scott? Why did they do that? Why do why do provinces do that? Uh, for Saskatchewan, uh, there's a number of different reasons for the act itself. Uh, one was just to get tabs on the immigration process because because we have uh, SIMP and a nomination uh, set up um, uh, and, and structure. Um, they wanted to get a better sense for who is bringing foreign workers into the province and who's using them, and also put more controls on who's providing immigration services in the province, uh, along with recruitment services as well, too, uh, just to make sure that the province itself uh, was making sure that foreign workers aren't getting abused, in addition to a lot of the registration and licensing uh, uh, regime that's in place. There's a bunch of anti-abuse provisions uh, that are specifically spelled out in the, the, the Foreign Worker Recruitment and Immigration Services Act. So that was one of it, was a public policy of making sure foreign workers who are always seen as a vulnerable group uh, weren't being taken advantage of or otherwise provided uh, shoddy service. Um, the other thing, though, was to essentially crack down on fraud within the Saskatchewan uh, Immigrant Nominee Program. Uh, they were finding that there's a actual pretty high level of, on review, a lot of the threat, uh, the the uh, application capacity that they were uh, 
that they had was getting eaten up by uh, fraudulent applications. And so by shifting the entire focus to registering the employers and focusing uh, the system through getting job approvals through that employer, they were able to verify that the employer actually exists, uh, actually has a job, and actually knows what's going on in relation to their company and that somebody's making a request for a job approval to move on to a nomination. Um, and by doing that, they managed to really, really, really cut down the number of applications they were getting by fraud reduction. Um, there was a large number uh, of applications that were essentially fraudulent or were done under employer names where the employer didn't even know that there was somebody running applications for them. And by cutting down on that fraud uh, that fraudulent application sort of uh, uh, level, uh, the the threshold f uh, and processing times greatly reduced. So uh, it took a huge weight off their capacity and allowed them to actually focus on real and legitimate applications. Um, so anti-abuse was one, and then just getting uh, control of the the actual intake of applications was the other. Huh. That's you know that's really interesting because. Um... You know, when I look at uh, the province of Alberta, um, I, I've never really talked with um, Brad Trafan, who's the the director of, of, of the program, about about fraud. Uh, it's never been an issue that has come up as much. Um, I'm sure it exists, and uh, it's curious to see how effective adding that employer registration component was to to actually calling out calling this out. And it's hard yeah. for us. It's hard for us to imagine, you know, someone who is, uh, you know, who knows where they're located overseas or, or locally that says, "Hey, I've got a, a scam. Let's take this company and uh, we'll get whatever information we can, make some fake app, you know, fake applications, and just fabricate the story. But we'll use a real company, and uh, and then we'll sell this. Well, you know, these nominations for people, and you know, uh, I guess, you know what. For, for an individual who's in that kind of a game, you know, especially if you're not even in Canada, maybe, um, mm -hmm. you know, the risks of, of, of doing that are, you know, you get, almost you non-existent. Get, you, get yeah. you get caught, who cares? And I think that's one of the challenges with immigration, especially when dealing with overseas providers in, in, in all forms, um, whether they're, you know, recruiters or, you know, or, or ghost consultants or, or whoever, that is one of the issues. There's just no, like, there, there's no penalty if if you get caught because you're not you're not here anyways. So well, yeah, and it, it, you know what reach do they really have to go to say India or another country where there's a lot of ghost issues uh, and really provide any kind of enforcement against that? And if the employer is not participating and doesn't know, there's no source there, and the foreign worker is usually duped by the process because they're getting legitimate documentation and believe they're doing things correctly in most cases. So really, who do you? fault or go after. You have this ghost that you can't access, uh, eating up all your capacity and time with fraudulent applications that you now have to try to really look behind the curtain and find out, does everybody know what's going on? And so the system with the registration, uh, for the pains that it maybe creates, the benefits highly outweigh, uh, we found. Um, the reduction in processing times is stark. Uh, before these implementations were put in place, something like the existing worker uh, or existing work permit category, which is a pretty common category for skilled individuals who are in Saskatchewan and already have some work experience will use, um, we were seeing in excess of six to eight months in some cases, 12 months sometimes for processing of the nomination. Uh, and that's obviously 
problematic when you're looking at very narrow, sometimes, you know, one to two year timelines to actually get something else in place for the employee and the employer to keep that employee around. And you're relying on the nomination letter to get a work permit so you can kind of continue the employment. Well, when that drops from six to eight months to, I think right now for existing work permit, they advertise it at 0.2 months, so less than less than two weeks essentially in some cases, to get when you have a complete application and it's submitted correctly, a nomination with a work permit support letter, that's huge. Now, obviously, that's to get the nomination. There's still the employer has to go through the registration process and get a job approval. Those steps take some additional time, but not significant by any means, and definitely not what we're seeing in other provinces where you're at, you know, you're you're better off trying to get through the express entry system or something else because you just don't have the time to wait that long. Right. So, uh, you know, when you're looking at a reduction like that, obviously it, it definitely freed up a ton of capacity and it kind of is telling of how much pressure they were getting from you know, fraudulent type applications running through the system that the capacities just dropped that significantly. So, huh. that is really, really interesting. You know, when I think about uh, this, you know, the, the changes, the recent changes that have happened with Express Entry um, and people looking to obtain permanent residence, obviously a lot of, you know, the people in 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 Saskatchewan, there's, there's a lot of use of the Temporary Foreign Worker Program through LMIAs. And so I can imagine that a lot of the uptake with even with the SINP was, um, you know, a lot of people were going straight to express entry with these LMIAs because that was the golden mm-hmm. ticket. And now that that has been removed as of November the 19th, or at least reduced so that it isn't mm-hmm. a guarantee anymore, I would bet, just like as the case with the with the AINP, there's going to be a, a greater demand for those those types of programs because the foreign workers don't qualify or don't rank high enough to go through express entry. So I guess the natural segue, if, if you, you know, if, if you're an HR manager or a business immigration lawyer listening to the podcast is, okay, well, what options are, are actually available uh, in terms of programs within the SINP um, to, you know, to retain key, key employees or, or to, you know, to bring, um, you know, highly skilled people in to, to meet labor shortages? What, what are the most common programs that are available? When looking at HR managers uh, and when an employer is really looking at, well, how can I utilize this system, um, you know, and, you know, your lead in kind of touches on it a bit of in some instances, it's really trying to retain existing employment rather than recruiting new employment to begin with. Um, When we're looking at the retention of existing employment, obviously, we always look at SIMP as one of the options in comparison to express entry. And as you mentioned, you know, if it's somebody who's here on an LMIA exempt work permit now with the change in points, you know, going to get an LMIA to get a points jump really isn't an option and was becoming less of an option any, anyway, quite frankly, with the current job market. Um, even for some of the more high skilled positions, getting an LMIA in support of permanent residency was becoming extremely difficult um, and usually was getting shot at recruitment stage anyway. <laughs> well, um, so, you know what, Scott? I'm actually mm-hmm. very glad to hear that that's happening in Saskatchewan yeah. so, th- so that the province of Alberta is not the, the only one that's, uh, you know, the temporary foreign worker program has become an absolute nightmare. So that's good. Yeah, Thanks for sharing yeah. well, that. Well, and it's, you know, BC, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, um, we've seen kind of a similar issue across the board with the way the labor market is. Um, so getting an LMIA for 
for permanent residency to get that 600 points jump, um, that was becoming no longer optional. So if we wanted to get into express entry, um, you know, getting a nomination for express entry, the express entry system that we have in Saskatchewan, I'm still not necessarily uh, hugely fond of the way it's set up. Um, we have an occupations and demand system um, and for express entry because we only have about 500 seats or 500 uh, application uh, and intake threshold of only 500. Um, they tend to fill up very quickly in a gold rush and disappear, but they're also based on a specific list of occupations. So um, ideally, it would be nice to get the express entry uh, nomination to support that permanent residency application through express entry and get through the system in six months, but that's not really realistic in a lot of cases. Usually for most existing workers where we're looking to retain them, especially if they're on an LMIA exemption, uh, intercompany transfer or otherwise, we're probably going to be looking at the existing work permit category, just the main bulk category that sits in in SIMP. Um, and it's a great category just because the qualifications are much less arduous than what you're going to see in express entry um, or in a lot of other nominee programs. Um, you're looking at six months you know, uh, of work in Saskatchewan is the qualifier for the work experience. And in a lot of cases, that's, you know, not even necessarily in some cases uh, high-skilled work. Um, you're looking for work in Saskatchewan for at least six months and then looking at uh, having a job offer for permanent full-time employment in a high-skilled position. Um, when you have that combined with the job offer that exists uh, through in the system, um, you're pretty much a shoo-in. The other thing, too, is you don't have to worry about language to the same degree. Um, obviously, language always becomes an issue once you hit the federal level uh, because the province doesn't have any control what IRCC says about we don't believe this person has the language to meet the job. That's just a, a different problem to deal with at a later stage. But at the nomination stage, um, unless you're somehow in one of these unique categories where a NOC C or D, um, a national uh, occupational classification of C or D is going to qualify for uh, a specialty program, the language benchmark doesn't really kick in. And so you don't have to really worry about hitting uh, a certain CLB level. Um, and you can kind of look at the worker and be, no, they have high skilled, a high-skilled occupation, uh, a job offer in that, we have a job approval, and they have the work experience. Well, at that point, you can go ahead with the application and uh, you just have a little bit more control and certainty that you're going to get that support later on. Um, you have short processing times on each end of everything, so that's quite nice. Um, the only issue that it gets for employers in retention is we're stuck in a, in a restricted labor mobility, mobility category for a long period of time. So. Let's say I have my existing employee, he's been good, uh, or he or she's been good, we want to keep them around, we want to retain them. Um, express entry is just not an option for various reasons, but we can get through the SIMP program for existing worker. So we're registered because we had to do that before actually securing the foreign worker that we have in the first place. Um, we've submitted for a job approval and, you know, within about two to three weeks, we've gotten an approval of that. Um, the job approval being something that's quite similar to uh, 
uh, information that's found in an LMIA anyway. Uh, it basically sets up the the undertaking requirements of what the employer is going to provide to the employee. Um, and once that job approval is in place, we can then go submit the nomination application for the worker. Um, that entire process can sometimes be wrapped up in under two months. Um, and so that's really nice when I'm looking to retain an employee. Uh, but then we get the nomination, submit the permanent residency application, and unfortunately the federal government's not throwing bodies behind provincial nominee applications, and we're looking at 12 to 16 months for the PR to solidify. Well, I now have this worker, and they can continue to work in the position for which I've offered, which is great, but you have to hope that you don't need to make any labor mobility changes uh, or labor changes within that 12 to 16 months because otherwise it's going to throw a lot of complications into the overall process. So great in that you can get access to the worker, get access to a new work permit, keep them here working for an extended period of time, but also problematic for the employer and the employee and that my labor mobility is now restricted for that 12 to 16 month period in post. Um, so, again, as an employer, I have to look at the short-term benefits plus the long-term obligations of what that kicks in uh, and see, is that realistically going to work within my organization? Um, if it is a pretty static position, we don't expect a lot of changes, then it is a great option for kind of keeping the person here just because the threshold is, you know, pretty easy to get over for a lot of LMI-exempt workers where otherwise you wouldn't really have much option. So in most cases, that's the go-to category. Um, the surprising thing with it is um, they offer quite a few seats in it, and it seems to never fill up to the fullest degree. So there's always some capacity there, which is nice. You're not worried about gold rushes where, uh, oh, express, or sorry, uh, existing work permit is opening January 1st of 2017, and I better have my 50 applications in, otherwise I'm not going to get in. Um, it is seems to have enough capacity to cover the uh, the interest and demand. So um, it's always a great option to consider in lieu of the express entry system when we're really looking at how are we going to process and retain that foreign worker. So how many total nominations? I, I'm assuming it's it's similar to most provinces now. Is it around 5,500 total nominations per fiscal year? Uh, yeah, for all programs. Yes. Um, actual nominations, yeah, it's somewhere around 5,500. I believe we're just shy of 5,000 uh, every year going through. So oh, they're yeah. trying to, obviously, like most places, trying to use up capacity where they can. So Yeah, I know the Alberta, uh, the Alberta Immigrant Nominee Program had a number of creative uh, programs uh, designed to make sure that they used up their allocation. Mm -hmm. And when processing times were through the roof, people just got turned off and didn't apply. And so mm -hmm. I remember, I think it was 2013, they created the Alberta Experience class, which essentially is if you walk and you can breathe and you worked, <laughs> and you worked in the province for two years and your employer says, hey, we'll support you, then you're good to go. And uh, oh boy, it sure filled up the quota fast. And in fact, it filled it up so much that there was enough for the next two years. And so, the, you know, this year, surprisingly, um, the AINP has not capped out and shut down like it did last year. And I, mm -hmm. I honestly thought that that's what would happen. So you're saying that with the SINP, um, it, they never have really maxed out their quota. No, like uh, I think it's the benefit of the registration process again, mm -hmm. you know, eliminating threshold capacity, um, basically making sure that the applications that go through are legitimate applications. Um, and so you're not going to get a lot of shot in the dark 
interest applications where people are just firing off yeah. or there's no qualification for it, which leads to it staying open because it's getting the actual applications and interest it really should versus a lot of unfortunate garbage applications that just gum up the system Lock to a degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that and being creative. Uh, so our existing work permit category is also combined with a health services category. So they're in the same application threshold intake level. Um, but again, even with the that that subsection being contained within the same application threshold, um, it usually keeps itself relatively open to the end of the year. Where we get more problems with gold rushing and things filling up is in the international skilled worker categories. These are ones that are less dependent on work experience in Saskatchewan or less dependent on having a job offer from an employer in Saskatchewan. And so they're more open to open application. So uh, one example is our express entry system is in this international skilled category, mainly because federal skilled workers and federal skilled trade workers could potentially qualify through the expression of interest system on express entry. So they can potentially qualify without a job offer uh, uh, in relation to uh, uh, getting into the express entry system. So it sits in this other category of uh, uh, of opportunity. Uh, but when we look at international skilled worker, they also have uh, a category called uh, just in demand. And you don't have to have Saskatchewan work experience and you're not necessarily obligated to have a job offer in Saskatchewan. Um, but if you have uh, foreign work experience um, uh, in certain jobs, um, uh, uh, there's a enumerated list of positions they may actually provide a nomination for you from outside of Canada. Um, so that one fills up in a massive gold rush. And in-demand comes and goes, so they'll have their application threshold fill up almost immediately when it's open. Uh, and then it'll stay closed for a period of time and is closed right now, but then it'll open back up in a flash and they might have another 50 seats, and then it closes again. So it's the, this analyst gold rush system that's very difficult to get through, we don't really use it for employers, though, ever, mainly because it's usually used for employees who don't really have that job offer there. Huh. In the international skilled category, we actually have a completely different uh, intake section called uh, uh, international skilled worker with a job offer, meaning I'm a foreign national. I maybe exist outside of uh, the country. I have no Saskatchewan work experience, but I have – a specific set of work experience in uh, a high-skilled job doesn't necessarily have to be from this in-demand list. Well, I can potentially get a nomination for that individual without them having that Canadian work experience or the existing Canadian work permit. So for an employer, if I'm looking at recruitment options with the way LMIAs are right now, it's potentially a category that could be used to get access to some workers in pretty much the same timeline uh, to a degree that would be needed for uh, an LMIA process to continue. So, and and it has open capacity as well too. So it's funny, the ones where capacity fills up and disappears immediately are usually these ones where the employer doesn't have to participate or doesn't participate to the same degree. But these ones that stay open for longer are the ones that require the employer participation. And it's just because the vetting and registration process keeps those capacities where they should because it eliminates shotgun applications. So, hmm. you know, that's interesting. I, I have a, um, I've got a private 
uh, Facebook group called Express Entry Law, which by and large is is dominated by international skilled workers looking to immigrate to Canada without mm-hmm. a, without a job offer. And the number of provinces across the country that actually have anything meaningful, um, you know, is uh, is very sparse. This you know this, the the S I N P being one of them. Now, how many nominations, you know, out of the, the entire allocation would be attributed to these, you know, direct immigration routes without having a job offer or an employer supporting it? I have to assume that it's a relatively small component to the, uh, you know, the full uh, 5,500. Yeah, they're low. Like, because we're looking at, for in-demand, I think the application thresholds, so not the approved nominations, obviously, but the applications they're willing to receive uh, was capped at 500, um, I believe. I'd have to double-check the number just to be 100% certain on that, but I'm almost certain it was set at around 500. Um, Express entry as well, I think, was set as an application threshold cap of 500. So you can see of the total applications they're even willing to receive, a 1,000 of them are in those I have no job offer, but I have skills sort of sections. Um, When we look at uh, uh, existing work permit, I believe the threshold cap is closer to 5,000, so they'll take way more applications in those categories. Uh, same with in-demand. I believe with, uh, or not in-demand, sorry, but uh, uh, international skilled worker with a job offer, so no Canadian work experience, um, they set it at, I believe, around 3,000 application threshold. So you can see, based on the application threshold, the number of nominations they're likely issuing in each category. Um, they're more willing to look at Anybody who is already supported by a Saskatchewan employer gets a massive benefit in having way more access to uh, opportunities within the SIMP. And that makes, you know, Scott, that makes total sense because the whole purpose of the provincial nominee programs is to encourage immigrants to actually come, settle, live, like you indicated, economically establish in the province. And that is why the whole program exists. And, uh, yeah. you know, but I, I, I see, you know, within my Facebook group and, and just the, the questions that I get all the time through my podcast website, um, the Canadian immigration com, that site and the questions I get all the time relate to, you know, which province has, um, you know, room for nominations and, and then, and then I see other questions, um, how long do you have to stay? Do you even need to go if you get nominated? And mm-hmm. which completely defeats the purpose of it. And I, I personally myself get a little bit upset when, <laughs> when people ask those questions. And recently I had one individual who received their, their nomination. And at first it looked like they didn't even live there and had no intention of ever going. And so I kind of gave them a little bit of trouble. And then they're like, oh, no, I, I actually do live in, in, you know, in Nova Scotia. <laughs> and, <laughs> but um, I, my, my PhD, uh, I can't get a job in my field <laughs> in, in Halifax. So I, I need, I've got some offers in Ontario. And so I said, well, okay, well, maybe there's some room for, <laughs> for justification there. But, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, just abusing the programs just straight for the purpose of getting, uh, you know, permanent resident status in Canada. So, Scott, if you have an individual who, it is kind of like a scam, I guess. Are there any mechanisms in place once the person obtains their permanent resident status, you know, for, you know, with our labor mobility and our, you know, uh, just, mm-hmm. just mobility laws uh, based on the charter, what, um, if anything, 
does the SIMP do or can they do to, to curb that? Now, obviously, you've, you you know, there's the, the check right at the very beginning because mm-hmm. you have to, have to vet anything. But is there anything that they can do? So, like, with retention of workers that come through the program, uh, we recently had an update from one of the uh, directors at SIMP through our provincial section. Um, and I don't want to misrepresent the number because I don't remember it exactly off the top, but apparently through SIMP, it has one of the highest retention percentages out of any of the provincial nominee programs. Um, And again, part of that comes back to the fraud controls that were put in place. Obviously, if people are honestly going through the program, your retention increases dramatically because you don't have fraudulent people who are just entering the country then disappearing into the ether. Um, I believe it was something above 70 or 80 percent were staying after landing, um, which is an extremely high number. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I could be a little off on that. I'd have to double check the numbers again, but if I remember correctly, it was something around those ranges. So obviously, yeah, under the charter, there's nothing that anybody can do to mandate that somebody stays. Uh, stays. You know, you're supposed to have the intention to economically establish in Saskatchewan the entire time. And we're always up front with the employers that we represent and employees that look at this is not an option just to stop gap employment or anything else. Um, the program is a very limited number of seats. We don't want to jammed up with applications that don't honestly need to go through there. And so we always careful with those considerations up front with our own vetting just to make sure that we're throwing applications into the system that really need to be there. Um, when it comes to what are they going to actually do, well, like most provinces, you know, what does the province do once the person has permanent residency? They're outside of your system of control at that point. I guess always the problem is going to be later on. Um, and you'll probably seen this commonly in your practice as well too. You know, I went through a provincial nominee program, and I said I was going to stay in province X, whether that's Saskatchewan, Alberta, wherever. And then two days after landing, I'm in Vancouver. Um, yeah. When those issues happen, you know, that's fine if the individual is going to do that and kind of not follow through on their intention, but without the justifications, like you pointed out, when it comes time for PR card renewal or citizenship applications. IRCC is going to look at that, and if they see, wait a minute, you came in through SIMP, you said you were going to economically establish in Saskatchewan, but you spent two weeks there and then disappeared. Um, you know, we're obviously not going to fault you for moving because, again, you have free and open mobility uh, under the charter once you've landed, but we're going to fault you for misrepresenting your intention through the application process. So it's not necessarily going to be the province that has the overall ability to come after that. It's going to be the federal government at these later applications that are going to pick these things up. Now, the province might take issue with some of it as well, too, in their own follow-up. Let's say they audit an employer, ask for documentation on the employee, and they find out through their own systems, through auditing, oh, look, you know, it looks like the person never stayed here. They might trigger something themselves as well, too. But again, it's going to be a mixed whose regulation and whose process kind of goes after that. So, And I think that's always an issue when you have a province who can regulate to a degree in an area but doesn't have full control over it, um, you know, who actually goes after the offender uh, and whose regulation process actually applies. Is it the province through the federal, uh, through the Foreign Worker Recruitment and Immigration Services Act? Or is it going to be uh, IRCC through the uh, through ERPA? Um, it, it's going to have to be kind of up to the two of them to figure out how they approach it. Yeah, and you know it's inter- it makes perfect sense um, from a, a province standpoint why the the 
um, <clears throat> the streams that that require a job offer or or actual work in Saskatchewan are given so much more preference than those mm-hmm. uh, for individuals that have no connection. At the end of the day, there's a far greater likelihood the person is actually going to stay and live in Saskatchewan if they have um, a job offer and uh, you know a pathway forward for, for an easier establishment or if you already have a track record of living and working there. So it makes perfect sense. And you know there's a lot of discussion, um, you know, um, online just about people how they're so frustrated because there isn't many spots and you know and the reality is look you know it's capped for a reason there's only so many that the government can pass around and the province has to choose the candidates that they feel are the absolute best fit to to stay long term and to make the province a better place to economically benefit and enhance and uh, if you know the individuals you're nominating are just coming in and filtering out to, to different you know, different locations back to the, you know, Montreal or, or Toronto or Vancouver, the, the big, big cities, then it defeats the whole purpose of the program to start with. Yeah, like I would totally agree on that point. And, you know, I, I think the changes as much as nobody likes change when it occurs, it's always difficult and immigration has enough changing as it is. It's uh, the rules change on a bi-monthly basis to the point where you're always learning. But um, when the province made this shift to being heavily focused on it's an employer-based thing at the outset, um, again, uh, the weight that it provided to knowing that these people are going to economically establish, but also knowing too that they have a, a, a a good shot. They already uh, are well employed, and that they're already going to be filling what is likely uh, an employment gap anyway, and not necessarily filling into positions where we already have enough local labor market to kind of fill those those positions. Because again, you know, realistically, most employers aren't going to go through the extra time, cost, and effort of this if there's Canadians available. Um, and where there is no Canadians available, obviously an employer is going to undertake the extra time, cost, and effort that's required for some of these steps. Um, and, and so it just shows that you know we're making sure that people are getting into the gaps rather than into the places where there's already gluts. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. You know, um, we, we've talked a lot about um, you know the the employer based uh, preference that the SIMP has. However, you know, and in conjunction with the fact that they don't always fill up all of their the you know the the the, the quota that they've been given. Um, I understand that the province is also making a little bit of a push to attract international graduates from other provinces. Um, you know, maybe we'd be remiss if we didn't just touch on that just quickly. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there. Uh, it's a change that rolled out in July, and it rolled out kind of quietly. Um, it, it was funny because uh, a lot of people, even practitioners in Saskatchewan, only have recently caught up to the change. Uh, we have student a student category. Um, it's under the existing skilled individual, so somebody who's already in Saskatchewan or in Canada. Now, our student category for nomination has two streams, and one of them was for individuals who have uh, an education background, uh, diploma degree of over eight months, uh, you know, to whatever their program was in Saskatchewan, and those who have studied in Canada but not in Saskatchewan and maybe have diploma or degree from a university in Alberta or a trade school out in Ontario or that sort of thing. It used to be that we gave preferential treatment to the in Saskatchewan individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of this is uh, essentially being based on having a postgrad work permit, 
but that you have that post-grad work permit and that you've worked it used to be if you worked in Saskatchewan for six months um, and had you know a job uh, offer and a job approval and all the other criteria there, um, you could apply for nomination. Again, even with the student category, they always tie it back to the employer with requiring a job approval through the SIMP system from the employer first. Now, for outside Saskatchewan students, uh, at a certain point, they had turned it up to where you needed 24 months of work experience in Saskatchewan before you would qualify for a nomination. And that was actually problematic because, again, if you have a one-year postgrad, you can't possibly get your yeah. work experience. You'd need a three-year postgrad to possibly get the work experience in Saskatchewan required to qualify. And so it shut out uh, a large group of individuals who had studied in Canada would likely be great candidates for economic establishment in in Canada or Saskatchewan, but they couldn't meet the criteria of the work experience. And so there's some extra caveats that do exist for outside students, uh, outside Saskatchewan students, but they reduced the Saskatchewan work experience from 24 months to six months. So it's pretty much on par with what you would see for in Saskatchewan students. Um, there are some uh, extra criteria on top of the outside students that don't exist for Saskatchewan ones, type of work experience and that sort of thing. Uh, but for the most part, the two categories are now somewhat on par. And it's great for employers, especially for employers who are trying to source people from Saskatchewan, because now I can pluck students from Saskatchewan universities, but I also have a preferential sort of option for if I'm trying to recruit somebody for a position here and I'm looking at students from Ontario or BC, um, I can basically reference the fact that, hey, you know, we'd like to make you this job offer. P.S. We have a great program that's going to let you access PR in a much quicker fashion. Unfortunately, it still grinds down on the federal end in the background with 12 to 16 months of processing. But at least the individual is going to be in a position where they're not stuck with an expiring postgrad that's non-extendable and trying to awkwardly get an LMIA or rush through the express entry system before that collapses down on themselves with their stuff expiring. So um, it, 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 it's great for students, but it is also great for employers just from the position of it opens up the, the level of individuals that we can access. And again, most of the times we're seeing people that have one, two or three years or more of you know, student economic establishment in the country, you know they're going to make it if you can just get them here and get them into the position. So um, from a recruitment standpoint, it just broadens the pool that Saskatchewan has access to. Now, Scott, I'm going to drill down just a little bit further on this before we jump to our last section, which is your your top do's and don'ts when accessing the SINP. Um, in Alberta, um, one of the things that they do look at is prevailing wage. And uh, so when you know, often one of the challenges with getting LMIAs for postgrad students is that they're coming in at entry-level positions. You're paying them at the wage that you would any Canadian at an entry-level position. And then to get the LMIA, you have to pay the prevailing rate, which is obviously, mm -hmm. you know, at the, the uh, median or average uh, for that occupation or higher in some cases. So how does the SIMP treat that in the context of, uh, you know, the supporting these international students? So with any of the positions that go through 
you know, when getting a job approval that's required for most of these employer-based processes, um, you're basically supplying information through the job approval process, similar to what you see in an LMIA, and that information forms the undertaking of employment of what's going to be provided, the occupation wage working conditions that's going to be set out. Now, in relation to prevailing wage you know, usually what they're looking for is that you have a relative wage uh, uh, for the industry. I, I haven't seen it come back as much where they've hammered on prevailing wage to the same degree yeah. that SIMP does, or sorry, that uh, the Service Canada does through the Temporary yeah. Foreign Worker Program. Obviously, though, if you're coming in with an extremely low ball wage, that's going to get reviewed as part of the job yeah, approval process. Yeah, so they want to make sure you're providing, uh, you know, a, a, a reasonable wage within the industry for the occupation. But then once you provide that wage in there, you know, that does form the basis of the undertaking, and you are obligated for substantially same, uh, but not less favorable wages and working conditions. So if you're ever audited, uh, and you said you're going to pay 26 bucks per hour, but you provided 20, you know, that's going to be an issue for the audit. If you said you're going to provide 28, 26 bucks per hour, and you provide 28 because there was a annual one-year wage increase, well, you're probably going to be getting by on your substantially the same testing. So they use those same kind of metrics when looking at what you've provided. But from a prevailing wage standpoint, we've never really given much quarter to the prevailing wage itself. We'll usually look at it and make sure that you know, you're know you at industry standard yeah, and you're range. at something that's, yeah, that's there. But um, it's not as draconian as what we see through the temporary foreign worker program. So with students, it's going to be kind of the same thing. Cause again, you're going to be supplying a job offer and a job approval for a specific position. So if I have an individual that's taking a certain degree, um, let's say accounting, for example, and that's where the job offer is, is for an accountant bookkeeper. Well, obviously we're going to have to provide a wage that's reasonable. It's going to be in the job approval and SIMP is going to expect that you provide that wage to the individual in that occupation. And so the one thing that happened with the Foreign Worker Recruitment and Immigration Services Act was it gave the province some teeth in relation to auditing and inspection. So when you are you know, employing foreign workers in Saskatchewan, you're subject to potential audits and inspections from Service Canada if you've used the Temporary Foreign Worker Program. You're subject to your auditing and inspection from Immigration Canada if they're going to do it. But then you're also subject to auditing and inspection under the Provinces Act through uh, – we have what's known as Program Integrity. Uh, it's the Program Integrity and Legislative Unit, um, the PILU. And they will conduct provincial-level audits. And when they conduct these provincial-level audits, they will look at – not just what you've done through SIMP, um, but they'll look at what you've done with foreign workers across the board. Um, and so if you have an LMIA-based worker, they may even look at that as well too and be, hey, your LMIA said this and you provided X. So, you know, and, and they may feed that information back to Service Canada. So again, employers have a pretty high standard to be in compliance with the Provincial Act, but then ensure that that compliance with the Provincial Act also extends to anything that's required federally. Um, so usually we would want to see prevailing wage type uh, wages in these things just because it makes it easier to show that there's kind of a uniform compliance across the board. Um, Non-compliance with the Provincial Act can really actually create some havoc for you on the federal sphere as well too, um, even outside of the province. If I'm getting audited in Saskatchewan for foreign worker misuse, um, you can bet that there's a potential that that's going to bleed into my federal use in other provinces. Hmm. Okay, well, let's take um, 
and shift the very last component, which I know will be uh, beneficial to all that are looking at exploring uh, the possibility of, of using the SIMP, whether it's an employer or, or other council across the country. Um, what would you say are, you know, maybe maybe we can even limit it to top three based on what we've, uh, you know, we've already talked about, but can you give us maybe your top top three or so, could be a little bit more, um, do's and don'ts when it comes to seeking nominations through the SINP? Yeah, like uh, I think the top one is always, especially now with the way that the Provincial Act is set up, is pragmatically getting registered for uh, for the certificate of registration as an employer. If I'm going to recruit or retain foreign workers for positions in Saskatchewan that will be primarily in Saskatchewan, whether I feel I'm in an exempt category from registration or not. I, I would always recommend that employers just go out and get the registration. There's no cost to it. It takes almost no time. Um, so long as you're in compliance with other regulations, there shouldn't be much issue with it getting approved. But it just gives you that certainty that you're not going to be found non-compliant for failing to register at a later date. Um, and, and so that's pretty much step one or recommendation one for anybody, any employer specifically who's looking to recruit for positions here in the province. All right. So registration, get it done. Yeah. it's There's no reason not to if you're going to be relying on foreign workers as part of your uh, labor base here in Saskatchewan. All right. Okay. So um, any others? Yeah. So... One, uh, the second one is always understanding the intent requirements of the SIMP. Again, as mentioned earlier, utilizing SIMP is not a stopgap just to cover temporary employment for a period of time. You know, it's a permanent residency option. Um, it's based on filling labor shortages here in the province in critical areas, and it's based on the employee having the intent that they're going to economically establish here. Um, and it shouldn't be used as a first-choice option just to extend some status because we want to avoid an LMIA or something else. Use it for its intended purposes um, and, and find other options where you have to. Um, otherwise, you know, you're always going to just run into some issues of the employment collapsing later or employees disappearing and failing the intent provisions. There's just a lot of other problem that comes with it. Plus you're just taking seats away from other applicants who actually really need to utilize the program. So, you know, Scott, that's exactly why I have you on the podcast. (laughs) When when I bring people on, I I genuinely try to bring on people that are doing it right, that are practicing the right way that are, you know, genuinely trying to make their, you know, their, their region in Canada, even their city and community, you know, a better place. And um, yeah, there's nothing that irritates me more than people that are, just in it for the money that are willing to do whatever they need to, to secure a result for a client, even when, um, you know, maybe from a technical legal standpoint, no law has been broken. You know, the spirit and intent is, is definitely, uh, yeah, has definitely been breached. So yeah, I appreciate that. All right. One more. Yeah. The last one would be, uh, and again, this comes from the compliance portion of it being proactive with it is understanding the undertakings that you provided and the labor mobility issues that come along with that. Um, Again, very great program for employers looking to retain employees, but they have to understand the long-term considerations of restricted labor mobility for that period. You're going to be looking at a year to a year and a half where whatever you provide in the job approval under SIMP 
that forms the basis of the nomination and the basis of the work permit on which that's predicated becomes the undertaking that you're obligated to follow. Um, and so making substantial shifts in occupation, job duty, wage, or working conditions may fall offside of the undertaking that you've provided and will become an audit issue later if it ever comes up. So understanding the labor mobility, getting into it, and understanding your short-term versus long-term needs is pretty critical because if you kind of fall into the program not understanding some of the more extended processing times and these labor mobility restrictions, it's a common pitfall where the employer will you know, find out later, oh, we couldn't increase the wage by $15 per hour and give that guy a promotion. We had to keep him in that position until this PR thing is worked out. Um, and if that's not going to be workable, well, then it's not really an option, option to use for the retention and extension of that employment and you may need to look at doing something else. Um, so always having that reviewed and just making sure that we're not jumping the gun on making employment changes to foreign workers who are under these programs um, can definitely be of benefit to uh, any employer who's using these programs for these purposes. Excellent. Well, Scott, this has been awesome. I really appreciate uh, the insight that you've given. Um, I know for a fact that employers who are looking at accessing the SIMP are going to find the information that you've shared uh, tremendously valuable. And uh, so, yeah, I thank you uh, just a ton for, for taking the time to speak with us. Now, um, if, you know, there are employers in Saskatchewan that, oh, I didn't know that this guy at, uh, you know, at MLT is, is, is quite the uh, knowledgeable person on the uh, SINP. Um, I would rather reach out to him and, and see if he can help us because my HR person is tearing their hair out with all of these <laughs> compliance issues. Um, what's the best way for people to reach you? Yeah, so the MLT website, which right now is still just MLT.com, um, you know, all of our practice areas are listed up on there. There's a, a full list of lawyers, and my profile is found there. Um, you know, uh, my email is pretty simple, which is sbell at mlt.com. Um, and, you know, my direct line is actually posted right on the uh, uh, on the website as well, too. So that doesn't go to a reception or anything. It does just come right to my desk. Um, so uh, the, the phone number there is 306-975-7113. Um, the website information uh, – may change a little bit as the merger happens here in 2017, but if somebody just looks for MLT Akins, it should pop up there as well too. Um, and with the services, you know, we practice pretty much across Western Canada. The slogan uh, that we use is that we're Western Canada's law firm. Uh, so we have services in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and BC, um, and do service people clear across the board. Um, you know, I, I, practice a lot in Saskatchewan, but we also have applications in these other provinces as well, too. So those are kind of the best ways to get in touch with us. And, you know, we're, we're happy to help out anybody who's uh, looking to get right on some of these items. Perfect. That sounds great. I'll make sure to put your contact information within the show notes of the podcast. Yeah, and sure. uh, once again, thanks so much, Scott. I really appreciate the time you've taken with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, great to see that this podcast is there. Uh, I know when you look around online, there's nothing but misinformation left, right, and center. So having a nice repository where there's uh, qualified individuals coming on talking about important topics uh, definitely helps from a practice standpoint. So, Excellent. Well, thanks so much. And I guess uh, this time of year, I wish you a Merry Christmas. Yeah, you too as well. Okay, take care. Well, you can see very clearly, once again, 
how just ideal it is to get someone on the podcast who actually lives in the particular province to share insight on that province's provincial nominee program. And that was no different with Scott here. He did a great job. And you can see that he really cares about the craft. He really spends the time that he needs to, to be able to practice at a very high level. And it, I've been so very, very blessed to get uh, guests on the podcast are, that are true heavyweights. These are lawyers who spend the time um, to, to learn not only what the government's websites say, but to take the time to understand the regulations, the impact that they have, and, uh, and are, are just positioned to truly provide vi advice that, that's worth paying for. So Scott is, uh, is definitely one of those, uh, those just great up-and-coming immigration lawyers um, across the country, but specializing uh, in all things related to the province of Saskatchewan. So Scott, I want to thank you very much for the time you took to join me on the podcast. I also wanted to thank you all as listeners once again for all of your support. It's been fantastic. I can't emphasize enough how much I love doing this. If it wasn't for the fact I have to feed my family and keep my law firm going, I would do this nonstop all day, every day. And I'm not to the point right now where, uh, you know, I, I'm independently wealthy enough to do that uh, with a daughter who's now heading back to university in the U.S. and a, a son in, in grade 12 and another one who happily, I just heard today, made his club volleyball team here in Lethbridge. And so he's pretty stoked. And, and uh, he's Connor. He is in uh, grade eight. And then my youngest daughter, Michaela is grade six. So with a clan like that, with hungry mouths to feed, unfortunately, I can't just pursue these labors of love with abandon um, and uh, forget the fact that I still have to earn money to to provide for my family and their needs. So, so regardless of all of that, uh, thank you all so very much for all of your amazing support. Now, we are closing in on the end of the year. And I have got some fantastic guests lined up. And I also intend to do one pre-2017, if I can get uh, Richard Curlin to join me here. We've been dancing around a little bit. Um, I'm hoping to get Richard Curlin on, who's an immigration lawyer, well-respected, well-known across the country, to come on and talk about uh, what we can all expect for 2017 um, with respect to our dear uh, Canadian immigration um, law and, and policy and, and where the government's headed. So we'll see if I can get Richard on. But uh, regardless, I've got a slate of, of awesome lawyers and uh, I'm excited to bring them on and to talk about all of the the craziness that, that just seems to never end. The changing, the constant policy shifting. And I think a lot of people are trying to figure out this whole express entry shift and what it means for them. And all of the many, many people that, like I indicated in uh, in the podcast um, that I did on Express Entry just previously here that uh, have got their feet cut off from underneath them because they had counted on getting an LMIA to help them essentially have a golden ticket to uh, an ITA for Express Entry. And now I've got a lot of clients who were having to rethink things and, and look at things in a different way. So that's one thing you can definitely expect with the uh, the Canadian government's policies uh, when it comes to immigration, is that they are never going to remain static. <laughs> They're going to change. So 
Well, I guess that's what makes immigration practice so dynamic, so unbelievably frustrating, and at the same time, just crazy rewarding too. So thank you so much for listening to the podcast, this uh, 38th episode. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. I've considered um, all of these to be season one. Uh, maybe I'll start season two, or or maybe I'll just renumber them all because it's a real pain writing season one, episode 38 every time I do a podcast versus just 38. So we'll, we'll figure out those logistics. Thanks for listening. I wish all of you a very Merry Christmas and hope that uh, this season, this holiday season across our amazingly wonderful country is everything that you would hope it to be. Take care and I wish you all the best navigating our crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. Your phone.